Let's change up the way you watch baseball. Introducing Change Up, a brand new live whip around show across the league, brought to you by MLB and DAZN. Jump in and out of the best plays as they happen and get expert analysis from hosts who bring a fresh personality and new perspective to the game. It's on every night and available on nearly every device smart TVs, tablet, mobile, and gaming consoles. Getting set up with DAZN is easy. Just download the DAZN app in the Apple or Android App Store, sign up by creating an account, and then start watching across any device. That's DAZN, D A Z N. Brilliant Earth is the global leader in ethically sourced fine jewelry. Create your own custom engagement ring from a variety of diamonds, gemstones, metal types, and settings. Brilliant Earth also offers wedding rings, vintage pieces, and other unique handcrafted jewelry. From April 29th to May 5th, that's right now, you'll receive complimentary diamond studs with the purchase of an engagement ring. So to see terms for this special offer and to shop all Brilliant Earth selections, just go to brilliantearth.com slash ringermlb. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at The Ringer. We got lots of great baseball content on the site this week. Ben Lindbergh wrote about the marketing of our favorite player, Williams Astadio, La Tortuga. I wrote about what we might expect from Vladimir Guerrero Jr. based on the uh, experience of previous number one overall prospects. And Katie Baker wrote about the creation of young Vladito, and we'll be talking about her feature uh, on the Toronto Blue Jays' third baseman later on the show. Also, I'd like to warn you that there are some mild Avengers spoilers in the last segment with Ben Lindbergh. Uh, If you've seen Endgame and Infinity War, you're definitely okay. If you've seen uh, Infinity War but not Endgame, you're probably still okay. We didn't get into that much detail, but just to be safe, wanted to warn you in case you wanted to hit pause and come back to that segment later. But first, we've got Zach Cram. All right, let's uh, kick things off as we usually do with uh, my friend and yours, Zach Cram. Zach. Hello. Excited, as our producer Bobby Wagner put it, to talk about something other than uh, the Game of Thrones battle. So other things are happening in the world, too, apparently. You have been uh, you've been burning the candle at both ends, burning. I guess they use candles in Westeros, right? Well, they have glass candles, which are magic, but uh, I think that's further afield than this podcast will endeavor. You've been burning the flaming arrow at both ends. How about that? There we go. Uh, So like uh, Sunday's episode of Game of Thrones, you can't see what's happening on this podcast. It is only an auditory medium. Uh, So uh, with that in mind, we're going to do some end of month superlatives. I think this was your idea, but I think it's a good one, uh, (laughs) as if you don't have good ideas usually. it's the end of the month. We're uh, coming to the end of the first month of the season. I think it's appropriate to uh, uh, to recognize some of, you know, use this as a signpost and whatever you ask Ben to do any sort of uh, end of first month stuff, you know, draw conclusions from from any from a, a sample this small. Uh, you get a reaction that sounds sort of like, uh, so you and I are going to do this. Uh, so we came up with a couple categories, a couple awards. Uh, The first one is biggest surprise in the positive category. What do you have? So I have the Minnesota Twins who we talked earlier in the season or maybe even preseason about how we both kind of wanted them to threaten Cleveland almost as karma for how lackadaisically Cleveland approached its offseason. And Minnesota now leads the division. It's still early. They've had a favorable schedule, including playing the Orioles six times already. Uh, But they look more real than I thought they would be. Uh, 
especially their offense of their 10 position players with at least 50 plate appearances. Nine of them have been above average hitters. And the 10th is Marwin Gonzalez, who probably won't continue to hit as poorly as he has and is at least a decent player. So they're basically a solid offense one through nine. They're led by such internet favorites as Byron Buxton and the now injured Williams Estudio. I'm just impressed with the kind of team they put together and not convinced they'll threaten Cleveland the entire season because I'm still not so sure about their pitching depth, but I like what I've seen from Minnesota in the first month. Yeah, they're uh, Buxton in particular. Uh, so I'm probably going to end up referencing the thing that ran today uh, where I compared Vladimir Guerrero Jr. to previous number one overall prospects. And Buxton is like the most hyped uh, position player prospect of the past decade, probably. Almost, I, I would say uh, almost up to inc- including maybe beyond the level that Bryce Harper and Mike Trout were. Um, and it just hasn't worked, but because of that, like I know Meg Schuster is on the, I will always believe in Byron Buxton, that Byron Buxton is almost about to break out bandwagon as am I, I think Bill made fun of me for writing that the, this is the Byron Buxton breakout year, um, article like two years ago and I'm ready to be heard again. Uh, so I'm, I'm really encouraged by what Buxton has done, uh, early this season. And I hope that this is not an illusion that he doesn't run into a wall again and just completely reset everything. Yeah. And it's of course, not just Buxton. They have a lot of under the radar contributors like Jorge Polanco and Eddie Rosario, who are never going to you know receive MVP votes necessarily, but are decent players and build a lineup full of them and compare that lineup to Cleveland, which is basically Francisco Lindor, who just returned from injury, Jose Ramirez, who hasn't hit all season and seven guys who you know, could wish they hit as well as Rosario and Polanco. And you have a pretty big disparity that maybe Cleveland's pitching advantage can make up for, but isn't an, isn't an assured to do so. All right. So my biggest positive surprise, uh, I'm recognizing this team because I think they're about to fall off a cliff after a really hot start. That's the Seattle Mariners. Um, I, uh, they started 13 and two. They were the, the toast of the American league. It was awesome. Uh, we had uh, Meg Riley on the pod to talk about it since then. They're five and 11 in their last two games. They've lost by uh, a combined score of 29 to two. And one of the pitchers they faced is Lance Lynn. So you have to take that with a grain of salt, but uh, they're, they're regressing to the mean all at once. And yet they're still tied for first place in the American league West. I think this has been a really fun, uh, They've been a really fun team to watch, a really fun story to follow. And if you're going to have flukes in April, like what a fluke this was. And basically enacting like the mid 90s Colorado Rockies strategy of try to win every game 12 to 10, which has been a pretty enjoyable viewing experience because no game is ever out of hand and you're going to see a lot of dingers. But I agree with you. I don't think this is going to last. So let's recognize them while we can. All right. Biggest surprise. Negative. What do you have? So I went instead of doing a full team here, I went with a specific part of a team, and that's the Mets pitching. Mm. Because I was pretty high on the Mets entering the season. I picked them to make the playoffs, and they still very well could. The NL East is pretty tight at the top. But the Mets pitching by park adjusted ERA right now, they're neck and neck with the Orioles for worst in the majors at 34% worse than league average. Now they look a little bit better than that peripherally. Uh, the defense has been pretty poor and they've gotten unlucky on top of that. But relative to expectations, you can't describe their first month as anything other than a disappointment. Going into the season, we were talking about their top four starters as maybe the best in the National League. 
and they responded with a 4.85 ERA for Jacob deGrom, 6.35 for Noah Syndergaard, 5.05 for Zach Wheeler, 3.68 for Steven Matt. So he's better, but then you also have the obligatory 720 from Jason Vargas and add on top of those starter struggles, the whole like Mickey Calloway refusing to pitch Edwin Diaz in a close game in the eighth inning thing. And it's a rather muddled mess from the Mets. I, I think you're right to pick the one, you know, that one uh, unit, you know, because I think the the whole team is fine. I've got every confidence in this pitching staff of, of picking things up. Mickey Calloway learning how to manage a bullpen, maybe not so much. He's we're we're starting to get a lot of data on him not really being that good a tactician. Um, but yeah, this is definitely something that you know they could be right up there. Uh, they still are challenging for the division lead, but they could have. Uh, um, given themselves a little better platform to work on if the pitching staff, which, you know, that's been the the calling card for, for the Mets for the past, what, you know, four or five years has, uh, has been their pitching. And it's like you said, been pretty disappointing. I will say not as disappointing as everything about the Boston Red Sox. Uh, so I think that's we've the talked obvious to, answer here. Yeah. And I appreciate you going a little bit off the board. So we're not talking about the same thing. Um, all the time, but you know, we've talked about this length. Um, you know, we probably don't need to belabor this. They had a, a really impressive comeback win against Oakland last night. Uh, impressive, but maybe not completely secure. It got a little hairy toward the end. Um, they swept the Rays last weekend, so there are signs of life, but they're still uh, something like seven or eight games back in the American League East. And you know, Chris Sale's numbers are getting better. The stuff, you know, is not chris sale like yet so we're, we're still keeping an eye on that but yeah i you know i thought this was the second best team in baseball going into the season and uh suffice it to say they haven't played like it no and i think you've seen some of their guys pick it up like even mookie betts is now up to a 134 ops plus so he's hitting better just over the last week or two and we're still early enough in the season that one hot week changes a player's entire statistical complexion but they have some real holes in the lineup, like Jackie Bradley Jr., who I thought was going to be a breakout player this year, is not hitting at all. Raphael Devers He's hasn't been streaky really, his entire yeah. career, Bradley has. Raphael so. Devers hasn't really picked it up. So I think it's not just the pitching. It's kind of the entire team is in a bit of a malaise. All right. Um, breakout good player. So this is the player that is a lot better than you expected or maybe didn't appreciate how good he was and then has really just had an incredible month of April. So I'm going to, interestingly, about your Mariners point, pick, I think, a, a totem of the early Mariner success whose personal success might not last either, but that's Daniel Vogelbach, who had not really a clear path for playing time earlier uh, this winter, but then Kyle Seeger got hurt, which moved Ryan Healy to third base and opened up a spot for Vogelbach in the lineup, and he seized it. He leads the American League in OPS. He is second in the majors in walk rate behind only Mike Trout. He's hit eight home runs. He's slugging 732. It's basically like a Joey Gallo starter kit almost, just without the defense. And he's just been really he's like if you he's like if you put Joey Gallo in a pneumatic press, you know. <laughs> and he's just been really fun to watch. And for someone who had always hit triple A well, but was maybe like a quad A player who we just can't translate that success to the majors, it's been satisfying to see that actually work and force the Mariners to give him more playing time. I'm not 100% a Dan Vogelbach believer. I still think there's some of that uh, quad A in there. You know, if he's still doing this at the, at the all-star break, then I'll 
uh, you know, then we can talk about it. But uh, yeah, he's definitely had a great month of April. My guy, I think, is a little more uh, definitely a different shape um, and uh, I think a little more sustainable. And that's Tyler Glass now, who has been uh, the I mean, he's been an ace for your Tampa Bay Rays so far this season. Six starts. He's won five of them. He's allowed just seven earned runs. The most impressive thing is the book on him was not just giving up a lot of home runs, but just not being able to find the plate. It was he was a classic, uh, you know, great stuff, couldn't throw strikes. And, you know, he was a little better out of the pen for Pittsburgh last year, pitched well out of the rotation. He was about league average in 11 starts for the Rays last season. This year, he has walked uh, just seven batters in 36 innings, 1.8 walks per nine innings. Uh, and the stuff is he's still throwing upper 90s fastball. The curveball is still incredible. You see him working a changeup uh, into his arsenal uh, against the Red Sox on Sunday. He's been absolutely incredible this season. I think this is somebody who, at the very least, could be the number two to Blake Snell in that rotation. You know, maybe, I, you know, it wouldn't shock me to see him pitch. I don't think his ERA is going to stay under two all year. But to pitch his, pitch his way into the all-star team, maybe into some Cy Young votes down by the end of the season. Turns out you don't need an opener for days when you have Blake Snell and Charlie Morton and Tyler Glasnow starting, which is part of why Tampa Bay's in first place. But I agree with you. And with every single start he makes, with every single home run Austin Meadows hits, it makes the Chris Archer trade look all the better mm-hmm. for Tampa. Mm-hmm. All right, breakout fun player. This is somebody who... Uh, you know, it could be a rookie, could be somebody who you know we're realizing is a lot more interesting to watch than maybe we thought at the beginning of the season. So I went with Tim Anderson here, who Good. has been part of controversy. There are two not, choices in Tim Anderson's one of them. Yeah, I don't think Tim Anderson, you know, he's been a part of a controversy, but not really of his own making. And I think the way that was handled has gained him a lot of fans, particularly by his not being cowed by reactions or by the league office when he hit a walk-off home run, I think over the weekend, he punctuated it with another emphatic bat toss. And I don't think he's this good. He still just has two walks this year versus 21 strikeouts. He leads the league in BABIP, and that will probably regress. But even if he falls back to earth, I think he's gained a lot of fans. And he also does a lot of fun things well. Like, that's where his strengths lie. He leads the league in stolen bases, for instance. And that's a fun thing to watch. That's kind of rare in a 2019 game. So I think his combination of increased exposure and increased skill makes him uh, the right answer here. I have also invested heavily in Tim Anderson in my diamond mine league. So if this is a a breakout season, I think this is a good, good story for everybody, not just the white Sox and Tim Anderson, but me as well. Uh, My breakout fun player is Chris Paddock, who we've talked about a lot. Um, Love Chris Paddock. He he was, uh, I can't get enough of him. I find myself like, hungering for more of Chris Paddock like like we knew he was he was the the Padres top pitching prospect we knew that he was close to the majors that he had like sort of that you know that big confident right-handed Texan like when when I was living in Houston I I thought that every 17 year old Texan boy uh was six foot four and could throw 95 miles an hour and like he is that starter kit but he has so much self-confidence like I worry he's gonna damage my television there he is so so much fun to watch i've already reached with paddock like charting out his innings totals because i assume that san diego will have him on a limit this year because of his injury history because they've treated him so carefully 
in the past. And I'm already looking like, well, San Diego's kind of a contender. Paddock's made every start so far. Like, when are they going to start strategically skipping him? And not just because I own him in fantasy leagues, but because I love to watch him every fifth day and I want to see that continue as long as possible. Yeah, we'll see if they make a move. You know, if some of those uh, veteran pitchers coming back from injury maybe come back a little earlier, they're bringing up Cal Quantrill. Uh, They're talking about going, I believe the plan is to go to a six-man rotation. Uh, Quantrill was, I think, the number eight overall pick out of Stanford in 2016. Uh, Yeah, I think it was 2016. He had Tommy John surgery. He's now back to full strength. Um, He could help carry that load a little bit. But yeah, I want to see Paddock throughout the season, into the playoffs, screw the innings limit. Um, Next category is top MLB.TV team. So this is like, you know, Zach Zach Lowe does the league pass rankings every year for NBA teams. And it's, you know, which which team is going to be the most fun to watch on TV? And this incorporates how good they are, how their style of play, even like the stadium, the, the ballpark or the, uh, the TV announcers who, who is appointment viewing for you this year? I think I've been watching a lot more national league than American league this year. That just Mm -hmm. sort of the entry point into this category, because like, you know, the Astros might be a lot of fun, but half the time they're facing the tigers or the white Sox. Um, so there were a couple national league teams I could have chosen from here. I think I've probably watched the most nationals this year which is kind of strange because they lost Bryce Harper but a couple things work in their favor one they have new exciting young players Victor Robles playing his first full season uh Carter Keboom who was just promoted and has already hit a couple big home runs uh they also have a terrible bullpen which sucks for Nationals fans but makes for a really enjoyable Hmm. viewing experience because you know they could have a five-run lead in the eighth inning and I'm still kind of watching out of the corner and as soon as one or two guys reach base, I'm immediately flipping over because that leads switching in a hurry. And the Nationals still have their starters who I really like to watch from Scherzer to new guy Patrick Corbin. So I've probably watched more Nationals than any other team this year, but you could throw in a bunch of other NL teams, the Brewers, the Dodgers, the Padres in here, and they you know wouldn't be far off. So I agree that there's sort of a, a compounding effect because the past few years, um, like when I was living in Houston, the Astros, I think, were the most fun team in baseball to watch. I like their uh, their broadcast team a lot. And one of the other teams I, I kept watching a lot was the Oakland A's just because they were on late. So if like the East Coast game is over, I like the A's broadcasting team. They were also fun to watch. So, I you know, I saw a lot of AL West games over the past few years. And like you said, the NL East is that division now. I've watched a ton of Nationals, but that's because my top two teams, number two is the Mets because of their lineup. Uh, and I love their broadcasting team, Get Well Soon, Ron Darling. But number one, and I don't care if this is a homer pick, the Phillies have been have that sort of Astros-style conga line lineup. They've been playing a lot of competitive and, and important games within the division. There's also a novelty. Like, I want to see Andrew McCutcheon. I, I'm still getting used to McCutcheon and Segura and Harper and JT Realmuto and, uh, you know, David Roberts, David Robertson when he's uh, uh, still healthy in that lineup. What does that team look like now? And, you know, there's still a lot to learn about them. So they've been the team that uh, that I've watched most of this season, you know, even if it is sort of a homer pick. What do you have an American League answer? <sighs> it's probably still Oakland. I'm still watching a lot of, I'm still watching a lot of Astros. Just, um, I'm watching more Tigers now just because they're the team that's that's on cable now. I've also watched more Red Sox than I have uh, in recent years. I don't know if that's just because they've been playing the Rays a lot and been watching a, 
Glasnow start um, Glasnow starts in, in preparation for writing about him, but um, Oakland is still probably number one out of the the American League teams I'm watching. Yeah, it feels like even though I don't think the stats bear this out, it feels like every time I turn into an Oakland game, Blake Trinan's pitching, which is fun because mm. he's fun to watch. It also means there's a close game. So I think the A's are probably my answer in the American League, too. It also helps that they're on later, so there's less competition. All right, and that sort of plays into uh, the next question. This is So this is the early victory lap. Uh, I have a feeling uh, I know what you're going to pick. This is something that you were a little off the board with early this season, and uh, you've been proved right through the month of April. I mean, podcast listeners will know my answer is the Rays, and I don't know how much explanation I need. I will just say about Tampa, Yes, they got swept by Boston uh, two weekends ago, and people were worried. No, maybe you know this is just a fluke. Well, they came back and beat Boston two out of two games this past weekend. The Rays are still good. They will continue to be good. They just called up a great hitting prospect, Nate Lowe, and I imagine he will help their offense reach even new heights. Uh, my extremely early victory lap. So every year before the season, this dates back to Grantland, like all the way back to like 2013. I put together the a list of the two players at each position who are the most fun to watch the all MLB.tv team and what is what we, what we've been calling it and uh when I filed this year my second team center fielder was Ramon Laureano who I wasn't really sure was going to hit uh this season again and when I filed it um uh, my editor Mallory Rubin said, "You know, I'm going to let you have this one, but nobody knows who Ramon Laureano is. You know, it's it's sort of a head scratcher, and he's been fucking incredible this season. He's been climbing the walls. He's been throwing out base runners. Um, he's been he's generated more highlights just on his own than probably the entire American League Central this season. Uh, so I was right, and uh, Ramon Laureano is the goods. Yeah, there's something so." incredibly kinetic about an outfielder who can make any throw it adds mm-hmm. so much excitement just as you're watching and you see the camera pan from the outfield then to the base and you're like all right is the ball online how far is the runner that's a thrill that you don't really find in other places in baseball and Loriano is obviously bringing it the most of any player right now all right and we got one more let's wrap this up real quick your favorite stat of the season my favorite stat I came up with this category just so I could find a place to talk about this is have you seen how Brewers pitchers are hitting this season? Oh, yeah, I've heard about this. Brewers pitchers are hitting 255, 296, 412. That's good for an 87 WRC plus, which is still below the overall MLB average, but gives them the same WRC plus as Buster Posey. They rank just ahead of Kyle Schwarber and Eloy Jimenez. They rank just behind Nolan Arenado and Manny Machado. And since the adoption of the DH, the best hitting season for any team's pitchers was the 1974 Pirates, who managed a team-wide 63. Now, that means the Brewers certainly won't keep this up all season, but it's so weird and so strange and such a massive record up to this point that it excites me like, you know, only early season dumb baseball things. We saw how Brandon Woodruff hit in the playoffs. Guess what? He's hitting 455 this year. Maybe his homer off Kershaw wasn't a fluke. Outstanding. Mine is... Uh, if you look at Fangraph's leaderboard for best hard hit rate, you'll see a lot of familiar names. You'll see Goldschmidt, Aaron Judge is 12th, Joey Gallo is, se- is second. Atop the list is Gamecock legend Christian Walker, who uh, Whoa. is a, a journeyman to say the least. He couldn't stick with the Baltimore Orioles, 
relatively recently. Uh, he is what I wrote about Pete Alonzo. I talked about right hand hitting college first base prospects is even guys who mash in college, like don't have a great survival rate in the big leagues. And I called Christian Walker a marginal big leaguer. And boy, am I wrong. His hard hit rate right now is 68.7%, um, which that's incredible. I cannot imagine is sustainable, but he has been absolutely on fire. Uh, you know, you, we talked about Jackie Bradley and Steve Pierce slumping for the Red Sox. This is where all the hits have gone for people who played for my alma mater, the University of South Carolina. So good for you, Christian Walker. Keep it up. There we go. All right. Happy April. Yeah. So uh, we'll do this again either at the end of May or when we uh, run out of ideas next, whichever comes first. But it's always a pleasure having you on the pod, Zach. Until then. Rear MLB show is brought to you by Burrow, makers of clever furniture designed for real life. And if your real life is like our real life, you're going to spend a lot of time on the sofa in the next few months because as nice as it is to see a baseball game, it's much better to see it in air conditioned comfort. Burrow's design means it's easy to move and easy to set up. It features it features naturally scratch and stain resistant fabric, sturdy hardwood frames, soft foam cushions and a built in USB charger. It's totally customizable, so you can pick from five fabric colors, three leg finishes, two armrest styles, any length, and add a chaise lounge or ottoman. One week shipping is always free and comes with a risk-free 30-day return period. So we owe a lot to Burrow at the MLB show because not only do they sponsor the show, but the Burrow is where I watch most of my baseball and where a lot of the Ringer's baseball content gets written. My Burrow came in three boxes. Assembly took about 10 minutes, and I love the way it looks, which I should because I got to customize it, and it survived moves. It's survived cat ownership. Uh, it's a great couch, and I can't recommend it enough. Uh, and if all this sounds good to you, it's time to upgrade your sofa to one that actually stands up to your lifestyle. Get $75 off a new sofa and free one-week shipping by visiting burrow.com slash MLB. That's B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash MLB for $75 off a new sofa. Thanks again to Burrow for supporting the show. So the big news in Major League Baseball this past weekend was the long-awaited debut of Vladimir Guerrero Jr., the third baseman for the uh, Toronto Blue Jays. And I feel like as long as I've been waiting for that, I've been waiting for Katie Baker's feature on Vladimir Guerrero Jr., which uh, I feel like we heard about nine months ago and finally ran this weekend. Uh, So here to talk about that article and Vladito is Ringer staff writer Katie Baker. Welcome to the pod. Hi, thank you. Yeah, I didn't realize that you know, my future was also in Ross Atkins's and Mark Shapiro's hands, but um, it turned out that way um, when he was never called up last year at all. So we decided to hold the piece and um, what, go to spring training in addition to having gone to AA baseball up in New Hampshire. So, um, so that was kind of a fun quirk of writing this article. Yeah, uh, so I recommend everybody go uh, check out the piece that ran last Friday, um, but so in lieu of just having you read it on the pod, I'm going to ask you a few questions. Uh, the The thing that stands out is the circus atmosphere around Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Like it's not just a prospect um, prospect hipster internet thing. Like there is a, a palpable excitement about him, even in Nowheresville, New Hampshire, in Double A. Yeah, I mean he 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 literally does like turn people's heads when he walks by because um, he obviously is a physical specimen of a, you know, very unique type. Um, I guess not unique in baseball, but, um, 
But yeah, and one thing that was funny about when he was playing for the New Hampshire Fisher Cats up in Manchester was that that's, you know, Red Sox territory. So you've got all these guys in like Red Sox caps and Patriots stuff, and they're all rooting for this player on a rival AL East team that's, you know, hopefully for those of us that are lovers of Boston sports, um, will at some point, you know, terrorize them. I guess that's inherent in rooting for that team in general. But when you've got a guy like Guerrero Jr., it's kind of funny to talk to some of the fans about that, like, weird tension. Yeah, it, his physicality is really interesting because you know, the the Blue Jays, one of their uh, reasons that they waited so long to call him up was they said his defense needed work, which... You know, you can take that for what it's worth, but you know, he just turned 20 and he's listed at 6'2", 250. And just looking at, at tape of him, he doesn't, he doesn't even look 6'2". Like, he looks almost small uh, at the plate. Yeah, I, I, he always, like, he kind of seems taller in person, I guess, um, when he walks by. But while I was down in spring training, I think I was there, like, the day they flipped the switch on the roster and changed him from six two hundred pounds to six two two fifty, you know, overnight. And even that was, you know, you could maybe quibble with even the new updated stats. Although I do think since his injury coming back and kind of in the last few days, I think he's looked rather spelt um, compared to how he looked in spring training. When I think a few people were starting to, and I'm not trying to weight shame or anything, but it started to become a little bit of a story. And I think, you know, Marley Rivera from ESPN wrote a piece about it and kind of directly asked him about his weight and what he was eating differently and that sort of thing. So it had become a little bit of a storyline, you know, which was the nature of holding him down is that that sort of thing then becomes a storyline. So, you know, seeing, seeing him up close, seeing, you know, all the, the buzz around him, was there, what stuck out to you? You know, something that maybe you hadn't seen or, or felt just absolutely ridiculous for, for a player of his age, you know, a minor leaguer at the time. Um, everyone talks about his patience at the plate, even if it's in marked contrast to his father who swung at everything and, um, and connected with everything. But it was cool to see him take batting practice because he really like, you see that he can place the ball so much better than, you know, you might expect just given his reputation for like hitting dingers. Um, he just, he does the same swing and it's like perfect line drives to first base and just watching him and like his precision and how far he, you know, how long he would wait at the plate for the right pitch. And, um, you know, it just really stood out that all those things that people say about him were true. Um, and so I'm, you know, it's going to be interesting to watch how that continues to transition to the big league game. So did you get a, a sense of like, I'm not really sure how you, how you'd measure this, but like the, there's, there's almost like, this is Vladimir Guerrero's son and he's the top prospect in baseball and he's playing for a Canadian team and that's awesome. But there's also like the very stark, rational on-field expectations for a player of his talent and, uh, and his prospect ranking. And I sort of wrote about this today. Like, you know, could you uh, appreciate it, maybe that this guy has special expectations just as a baseball player beyond like the, the, the narrative reasons why he's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, again, you kind of definitely see that when it comes to, you know, how's his defense, how's his third base, you know, every time he shuffles a few steps too far, people are starting to worry about it in a way, 
I guess I guess what stuck out to me is that you know they have like Bo Bichette on the team too, who is a pretty you know high up there prospect in his own right. Um, in addition to some other kind of young guys, and you kind of just see the the difference of how it is for them versus for Guerrero. And in a way, it's probably really annoying for them. And then in another way, they're probably kind of shielded from maybe some of that energy being taken out on them um, for mistakes. And you know, Bichette's injured right now, but. Um, I guess that's kind of what I noticed was more just the comparison between him and, and a, another, you know, obviously not top tier prospects like the ones you wrote about, but, you know, another kind of top prospect in the J system. So this is one of uh, two uh, spring training media circuses you encountered during your time in Florida. The other one was uh, when you went down to Philly's camp uh, to see uh, Bryce Harper. I'm curious how you know, how those two, uh, you know, big events, the, the two big ticket players, uh, compare to one another. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was cool to see two of, you know, we worry about baseball and baseball stars and that sort of thing. And so it's cool to see two players that are, you know, currently and in the future expected to be, um, two of those top level guys. Um, and Bryce Harper obviously is in a different stage in his career and he's now the, the free agent you know, Bryce Harper, no longer the young, the young pup, Bryce Harper, but, um, you know, just the energy in the, in the Philly stadium, the combination of, of, of player and fan base in that case made for a really specific kind of circus. Um, you know, the Philly media and, um, the, just like all, it was a lot more kind of meme like t-shirts with jokes on them and, um, you know, a lot of swagger and, drunk Philly people and that accent that I love so much. And so, <laughs> um, but it was cool to see that and to see both players kind of live up to the hype, you know, so far. Yeah. I mean, I know you and I have talked about this as, uh, you know, you are also a New Jersey and, um, there is sort of a specific Philly fan, Philly media aesthetic that, uh, you know, it's been really interesting to watch Bryce Harper interact with that. And you know, what I've always said is Philly's fans love to be pandered to, and nobody has pandered harder than Bryce Harper in the, the past month or so. Yeah. And, and like, and kind of, I know totally. I mean, every, he's like checked every box. Um, it's like alternatively funny and charming. And then also just makes you roll your eyes and gag a little bit. Um, but I say that as a Mets fan, full disclosure, um, but, um, you know, kind of similarly, like I would say almost the same thing applies with Vladdy and Toronto. It's like this mixing of obviously the Canada thing that we've talked about. Um, and by the way, I mentioned in my piece that, you know, I, I, you could say city wise that Toronto fans didn't necessarily grow up loving the Montreal Expos, although someone wrote me a DM saying that in Canada, the way the TV was, they got a lot of Expos games, at least at his house and kind of followed both teams and appreciated both teams. So shout out to that, um, that detail, but, um, you know, so the combination of, of a Canadian team and the fact that it's just kind of a, I don't know. I just, it was interesting going back and forth between the two teams because just the vibe of the franchise is different. Toronto is a lot more, um, you know, wanting to explain all their decisions and, um, you know, no, no offense against Philly, but a little more media friendly, um, and just handling the the circus in a different way, in a way that kind of um, just felt like it matched Vladdy's story and his personality well, in the same way that Philly matches Bryce. 
Yeah. And I mean, there still is some pandering. Like he wore his dad's old Expos jersey to the ballpark his first day. And I will say, I don't know, you, you're probably better situated than anybody else at the ringer to, um, to notice this. If there is like some carryover, the, the only needier fans in North America than Philly fans are Toronto Maple Leafs fans. And I wonder if there's a little bit of, uh, you know, when the, when the Blue Jays are good, like they, it's the, the atmosphere, the, the hype around them is incredible. And we saw that in 2015 and 16. And I wonder if, uh, if we could see, you know, if obviously they'll take more than one player, but if this is like the first step in, in that hype train sort of ramping up again. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, like you said, the, the previous overlap um, was like the Jose Batista bat flip years, which like was kind of the perfect controversy for that fan base because it was a very hockey controversy, you know, like Mm -hmm. about respect and like celebrations and whatever. Um, But anyway, yeah, I mean, I kind of think that they even delayed Vlad's um, appearance, you know, a little bit part weather reasons. And then part there was a game seven for the Leafs and, um, unfortunately they lost, but you know, it was kind uh, of a hilariously a good, they uh, lost, I would say, but <laughs> true, true. Um, but you know, it was a good, it was good to have Vlad there a few days later. I mean, the other Toronto specific thing that I noticed and that I'm kind of a little worried about, to be honest, um, was that I saw that he was hugged by Drake. And so we oh, all no. know like the Drake first. Yeah. Like already. So um, you know, that didn't, port- I mean, I guess it was inevitable, but I just didn't think it would happen so soon. That's rough. That's a lot to, yeah. But anyway, the, the, the Bryce Harper parallels are interesting because, you know, the more I watch, the more I watch Vlad, like the more he sort of reminds me of Harper in terms of like the uncommon, the uncommon, uh, the combination of like strength bat to ball and refined approach at such a young age. And like, they're obviously very different, different, uh, you know, phys- you know, they have very different physicalities and they're, they're different kinds of athletes and different body types. Um, but like, there's a similar, like easy, like loose armed quality to, to their swings that, you know, we haven't really seen Vladito uh, get a hold of one um, in a major league uniform, but you know, I think there's, you know, we obviously know know his power, but you know I think Harper might be an interesting uh, career blueprint for him in terms of the the high expectations and, and big narrative from such a young age, and like the you know the hitting approach is is actually more similar than you might think. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, for like for both of them, I mean, you hear this a lot. I think we've both said it ourselves, um, like with Vladdy, but I also heard it, at, you know, with Bryce is like you just like it, it, the ball sounds amazing when, when they hit yeah. it and it's a really satisfying feeling to, you know, when you're, when you're there in person or even when you're watching on TV and, and they, they do like, there's just so many stages of what, like there's such anticipation because anytime they're at bat, it could, you just know it could be some kind of like interesting moment. Um, and then there's the actual moment where they hit it and you're like, yep, that was it. And that's like yeah. a really fun, I mean, that's, that's why we used to, that's why we had tolerated the steroid era for so long. So we could like have those moments and hopefully, you know, these are kind of, um, you know, sanctioned ones now that, that we're having in this era and can, um, can draw people into that. Good. Well, I'm glad you, you've linked Vladimir Guerrero Jr. to PEDs now early in, <laughs> this early in his yeah, career. So now think. it's just, we've got the, we've got our headline. Um, yeah, that was my takeaway from spring training for sure. 
Um, <laughs> you know, just trying, I'm just, I'm just trying to get back to that, that TV high. I've just been chasing it for so long and now here it is again. One thing actually that, <laughs> that reminds me that one thing that's crazy about his father is that he really didn't play very long ago. And it often feels like, you know, he feels like a very almost nineties player, but mm-hmm. he played like this, this decade. Um, yeah. And as a result, there's still a lot of people in the league that overlaps with him that Vladdy is kind of constantly interacting with, which is, which I just think, think is kind of interesting. It is really weird. Like I've, I've sort of kicked the tires on doing something on, um, on Bartolo Colon a couple years ago and was, you know, talking to, I, I was trying to talk to former teammates of his, obviously, but like I ran into a couple people who had been in the league for a while, like Delano De Shields, for instance, uh, whose fathers played alongside Bartolo Colon. And like, there's an interesting, yeah. like generational overlap, um, that you'll see like, you know, Nolan Ryan struck out something like seven or eight father son combinations, you know, it's, but yeah, it's, it's weird. Cause I, th- I think part of this is you mentioned Bo Bichette and Kevin Biggio is uh, Craig Biggio's son, who is also in the Blue Jays system, will probably be up before too long. Um, it's not weird to see sons of of players that uh, that were in the big leagues uh, within you know within uh, our memory, but like yeah, it doesn't seem like uh, like the Vladimir Guerrero pair has has been out of the game that long, like you said. Yeah, and like I think he overlaps with Josh Hamilton for five years. You know, it was um, it, it was just it was more recent than you think, which is a reminder of both how old I am and how young Vladdy is, and you know, just the the march of time moving on. Oh boy! Well, that's it. That feels <laughs> like a, a good way to to end our segment. Thanks so much for for coming on. This has been it was a great article and. Uh, um, we're looking forward to, you know, obviously this is the biggest story in baseball right now. You'd have to imagine. Yeah, no, it's been really fun to watch and it's been fun to watch like people that really aren't baseball people kind of notice it and comment it, comment on it. And, um, so, you know, we continue to continue to wait for the first home run. He's already taken longer than his dad. So he's already, you know, a disappointment in that realm, but, um, but hopefully he can make up for it. Talk about expectations. All right, Katie Baker, you can find her work at theringer.com. Uh, thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Let's get something straight. Your teeth. Smile Direct Club straightens your teeth for 60% less embraces with invisible aligners sent directly to you. Simply go online and book a free 3D scan at one of their smile shops or order an at-home impression kit. Then they'll email you a, a preview of your new smile and once you get your aligners, one of Smile Direct Club's duly licensed doctors will check in on your progress every 90 days. Visit SmileDirectClub.com for real before and after photos from some of 550,000 plus satisfied grinners. And exclusive for our listeners, you can get $100 off your invisible aligners when you go to SmileDirectClub.com slash podcast and use offer code MLB100. You'll also get a $25 Amazon gift card with a free 3D scan at one of their smile shops or a $25 rebate on an at-home impression kit. That's $100 off at SmileDirectClub.com slash podcast, offer code MLB100. SmileDirectClub.com slash podcast, offer code MLB100. So you could call this segment of the podcast Phase 3, our endgame, because when I asked Ben Lindbergh what he wanted to talk about on the pod today, he said Thanos. So here we are. We're going to talk about baseball movie Avengers Endgame. 
Yeah, well done. I'm impressed with that intro. Extremely topical segment. So baseball makes a pretty prominent appearance in the biggest movie ever. And I was going to say you can't buy that type of publicity, but it's a Marvel movie, so you probably can. There's uh, plenty of product placement in Avengers movies. But as far as I know, MLB didn't buy it its way into Endgame. So no Endgame spoilers here, except for this bit about baseball. But if you haven't seen Infinity War, this will be a spoiler. But if you haven't seen that by now, maybe you won't mind. So at the end of the previous Avengers movie, Thanos, the big bad guy, he collects all the Infinity Stones. He has the power to do whatever he wants, and he's very concerned about overcrowding and running out of resources. So he snaps I his think, fingers. Uh, Allison Herman called him a, a hardcore Malthusian. Right. (laughs) He snaps his fingers and he winks away half of all the life in the universe, including half of life on Earth. And so when we pick up in Endgame, that's where we are. And uh, I won't say how much time has passed. Some unspecified amount of time has passed. And if you've seen the trailer for the movie, you already know this, but Endgame features an establishing shot of a rundown, overgrown, abandoned city field. And then it also features one of the directors of the movie making a cameo and saying he misses the Mets. So this is just one of the times that baseball is featured in this movie, but I want to focus on this one. And we don't know the details of how the Mets came to be disappeared. For all we know, this was just one more cosmic joke and all the Mets disappeared and the Yankees were all fine. Or possibly half of all the New York players disappeared. I don't know. In real life, it's gone the other way. (laughs) Right. That's true. This might actually be happening for the Yankees right now. But maybe half of all the New York players disappeared and they just combine the teams, but I think we are supposed to believe it's implied that Major League Baseball is over. It's just done so. I think that is what is suggested here. And as far as I can recall, MLB seems to be like the only thing that the survivors miss other than the people who have been snaptured, right? They miss the the people who were gone. But as far as I know, the only thing about that previous world that they really miss is baseball. And I want to talk about whether you think this is, I'm not going to say it's one of the more implausible parts of the movie, because I think there are some other parts that could probably take that title, but good. As long as we're like, yeah. (laughs) Do you think that this would happen in the post snap society? Would major league baseball survive? Yeah. I mean, unless the post snap society brings about it, there, there, there are a couple ways in which it wouldn't, and one is which some, one is, uh, is some uh, f- statistical fluke, like some disproportionate number of, of people important to baseball did not survive the snap, right. um, which, as far as we know, didn't happen, and it, we're talking about thousands and thousands of people. But the other way that that could happen is that brings about some sort of broader societal change that. You know, we are we don't live in in uh, what anybody would recognize as American society. And as far as I can tell, that isn't the case. Like mm-hmm. everything just sort of picked up with half as many people. Yeah, it doesn't seem like there's been a, a complete descent into anarchy or anything as far as we yeah. can tell. So it seems like things are still functioning. I don't know if as normal, but the people whales are going are about their back. business. Yeah, that's right. The whales are back, but baseball's not back. So this to me, I would bet that baseball would survive, that Major League Baseball would survive because, I mean, obviously it would be suspended for some time. And there's some precedent for this when national tragedies have occurred. Baseball stops for 
a bit, but then it comes back. And obviously during World War II, it continued when most of the players were in the service. Mm-hmm. You just called up other guys who were not in the service. And there's the, kept the famous letter from uh, from Franklin FDR, Roosevelt. FDR, right. Saying, yeah. yeah. He, he considered baseball vital to the war effort just to kind of keep people's minds on something other than the war and on how depressing the world was. So baseball is a distraction. It's something that brings people together. And I would think that if the snap occurs in the middle of the season, I think maybe you suspend the season. I yeah. think that's that's probably it. I think for we the miss year. I I think we definitely miss uh part of or if not all of, of a season while they figure out what to do. Cause there is like a catastrophe draft or like some contingency right, yeah. uh baked into either the CBA or the bylaws of Major League Baseball or something like that. Like they've thought about what if a team plane goes down, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, knock on wood that that has never happened and and at least in baseball and hopefully it never will but there is a plan in place uh should something catastrophic happen to one team obviously uh rob manford and his predecessors have not planned for the annihilation of half of the living things in the universe so no <laughs> right that's that's a contingency plan that as far as we know does not exist but if that were to happen and i i think obviously you'd get a lower quality of play You'd have difficulty filling City Field, even if the Mets continued playing. There just probably aren't enough people to make that economical. But I think you'd just call up a bunch of minor leaguers and baseball would still mostly look like baseball, except that if Mike Trout is still around, if the stars are still around, they're going to be super duper stars and they're going to set all sorts of records because they're going to be playing against half triple A competition. Still, though, it will be baseball and people will like it. And I think it would be considered an essential part of the fabric of society. And if we're going to continue, you have to have baseball just to bring back some kind of continuity here. So I reject the premise that baseball would not survive the snap. I actually think you wouldn't have trouble uh, filling filling City Field. I think if you might lose a team like if half of the population of of like Cincinnati disappears. Right. Maybe you, you lose contract. a couple teams. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what, which maybe would be the better happens. way. But I think like if, if uh, capitalism is one of the things that survives the snap, then you'll probably just see like ticket prices go down until, well, I don't know, maybe that's naively, you know, that's a little bit naive <laughs> considering the, how the team in Cincinnati is drawn right now. Um, <laughs> But you'd hope that this would be the kind of tragedy that brings us all together and, and you know, maybe uh, – right. I think New York could still support two teams if it were half the size that it is now. I think so too. And we have seen baseball be a unifying force in New York specifically following a real-life tragedy. And I think baseball would serve that important function in this fictional world. So I am, I'm glad to see baseball have a, a prominent part in a major movie, but I am sad to see that baseball did not survive the snap. And I object to this, uh, this fictional world. I, I think things would play out differently. What do you think Mike Trout hits again? Let's say there's like 24 teams. Yeah. And I guess half of the league is, or, well, I guess that would be what two thirds of the league is, is uh, quad A players or, or minor yeah. leaguers. Yeah, I mean, if he's what a ten war player or something now, let's just say that maybe he becomes like a fifteen war player if there's some contraction involved and you're not just totally watering down all the rosters, but you're actually wiping away some teams. So, yeah, I mean, that would be nice, I think, because we would actually see some records set and there'd be some excitement there that mm-hmm. would 
bring people back to baseball. That would be nice if <laughs> yeah. Thanos killed half the people in the universe. <laughs> I, caught, I caught myself thinking about it. So I like I said this out loud and I don't mean it like I like Thanos, but like Thanos is I enjoyed him as an on-screen presence. Yeah, I do you know? too. I, I don't um, totally understand why he does what he does, but I also I, don't understand why he's like capable, like he being capable of interstellar travel, like mm-hmm. doesn't realize that there are resources on uninhabited planets. Like, yeah, it's a big that, universe we, out there. That, that, yeah, that it's a big universe. Can't all be overcrowded. This is like this is a problem with Thanos, and indeed, I, you know, a common political problem in the real world. It's not scarcity; it's distribution. <laughs> right. Well, so yeah. there's a lot of larger conversation to be had about that, but perhaps like, not I on the like show. I feel like somebody needs to, like, he needs to to read a book, maybe. But you know, <laughs> he he will have time having uh, uh, having annihilated half the people in the universe, uh, <laughs> right? If he, if he so chooses. Anyway, anyway, yeah. So I think we've covered it. I just uh, want oh, to bring the other that thing to, I wanted to say. Yeah, sure. You know, we're we're assuming that Trout survives the snap. Do you see parallels between Mike Trout? in terms of the shape of his head and neck and body with Thanos. Is Mike Trout Thanos? Is he a Thanos? I mean, the chin area is somewhat different. He doesn't have the grooves as far as I can tell. But other than that, the head shape, really the the body shape is uh, somewhat reminiscent. He is sort of a, a square person. He is, uh, he's large and uh, so is Thanos. So I do see the parallels there. He is large and so is Thanos. Who is, <laughs> I, I, I think we saw uh, Yasiel Puig uh, photograph himself in a half of a, a merm, a mer, I guess it would be a merman costume. Mm-hmm. Uh, I imagine he's Thor in this universe, powerful, <laughs> yeah. but also comedic. Yeah, that's that could be true. Yeah, latter day Thor, since he stopped being so serious and, and became fun. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, if if uh, you have opinions about which baseball player would be which MCU character, please send them to oh, at Ben yeah. Lindbergh on Twitter. <laughs> please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a uh, it's been a bit of a drought for new baseball movies lately. We've seen some big baseball movie anniversaries, but a little light on new baseball movies, so it's yeah. heartening. We I think. had that. That golden age. I mean, obviously, there are the two recent rewatchables, and you know, mm-hmm. uh, Zach and I talked about Major League and League of Their Own, and and Little Big League. I think that's you know, those are the classics, and I don't know if we're ever getting anything like that. But now we're we're left sort of grappling with uh, nods to baseball movies like Interstellar, and uh, right, yeah, baseball survives in Interstellar. You have the Yankees; of. they're kind of a barnstorming team mm-hmm. that's playing to tiny crowds, but if they can survive Interstellar and uh, complete climate collapse, then I think they can survive the snap. Well, maybe that's selling. I think we might be selling short. Everybody wants some, which we talked about on the pod mm-hmm. yeah. years and years ago. But yeah, that's, I think that might be, that might break into my top five. I, I did, I put together like sort of a half-ass top five and like, and forgot about league of their own, but uh, you know, that's uh everybody wants some is, is up there. I think and that's relatively recent and good baseball scenes. Because yes, you get actors like Justin Street and, and Tyler Hecklin who actually know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, are we going to wrap up with a, a shout out to Red Assery? Oh yeah, this is another uh, long-standing fascination of, of ours, uh, Red Assery, uh, mm-hmm. which we talked. We had a, a whole like hour-long conversation with Dan Heron about Red Assery on the pod uh, a couple years ago. But Mark Craig from the Athletic has written. Uh, uh, you know, a pretty definitive article on the, on the history of red assery and wonderful phrases like uh, the ruby rectum, or <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> I enjoy sphincter. 
Yeah, I enjoy uh, the the phrasing of red ass being not just an adjective, but a noun. So like yes. he has the red ass, which I yes. read in the same tone as um, Pagoda from the Royal Tenenbaum saying he has the, <laughs> has the cancer. Or um, just he has the S, evidently. He has the you can, S. <laughs> you can omit the red entirely. That's the thing I love about baseball lingo is that baseball just insists on having these specialized terms for things that we already have ways to describe mm-hmm. in non-baseball contexts. Like you could just say that so-and-so has a short fuse or a quick temper. Or he's hot-tempered. We don't necessarily need red ass, and yet we do need red ass because yeah. it's a wonderful term. And I don't know if you've have you ever heard it in a non-baseball context? Never. It's one of the, no, neither have I. And so it's one of these things that if you bring up in conversation, and certainly if you overhear a baseball player just saying he has the ass, I mean, there's there's no telling how someone would interpret that. But that is why baseball is so rich and has such a, a wonderful tradition that even Thanos can't erase. Yeah, one wonderful thing about about the article that I enjoyed that I wanted to to call out is the it takes one to know one. Red ass moments like yeah. uh, Earl Weaver telling Lou Pinella he's a red ass, or like right. red uh, ass recognize red ass. We, uh, <laughs> you can see John Cruck has a couple big moments, and you know Larry Boa is, talks about Jim Bunning being like, where does Larry Boa get off calling somebody else a red ass? And I, I'm thinking yeah. about. I like, I like that that, uh, that Cruck is a reformed red ass. So sometimes yeah. with age and and maturity and maybe lower testosterone levels, you can leave your red assery behind. And so people know Cruck as this easygoing, affable broadcaster, but not in his playing days. He was a, a major red ass. Just thinking about the the ninety three Phillies, like everything I've read about that team, like so Cruck is on that team. Larry Bow is the third base coach. Uh, Dave Hollins is like was the red ass above all red asses. Apparently mm-hmm. like he he threatened to beat up Phillies pitchers who didn't throw it at uh throw at the opposing team after a Phillies hitter had been hit. And so like he's on that team, Lenny Dykstra's on that team. Just I can't imagine what that clubhouse must have been like. Right. Yeah. And another thing, that a tidbit from this article, it, it's kind of mentioned how sometimes writers will have to use a euphemism for red ass if they can't get in, that into print or into a podcast for some reason. But this article mentions that Joe Girardi would at times substitute red patootie which I think that's a fireable offense on its own. I I know he was not let go because of that, but I, I think he should have been let go just solely that's, because uh, of that. That feels very characteristically Joe Girardi. <laughs> it does. <laughs> just oh, too nice. diplomatic. You, you you can't use patootie. Yeah. So anyway, just because that's a, an interest of ours, you know, I don't know if that that warrants an entire segment, but I'm glad we had a, a couple minutes after discussing uh, Avengers Endgame, which I, I think we'll we could agree is is more important than, uh, <laughs> than anything that happened in baseball this week. Yeah, um, I guess Hellboy would have been a, a more natural segment to Red S, but it, it didn't work out that is way. Is Hellboy a Thanos? <laughs> is he a Mike Trout? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think he has the a similar build, but uh, Thanos does not quite, I guess you could say he's red. He's red-ish. He's ochre. Yeah. yeah honestly, it would be shocking if his ass weren't red. <laughs> That's right. Okay. Well, we have somehow tied together the the two parts of this segment that had very yeah. little to do with each other. All right. Are you ready for? I, I got a, a killer way to end this segment. Are you ready? Okay. <laughs> That's pretty good. I'm right? still here. Yeah. Ah, damn it. <laughs> Wait. No. I'm I'm so relieved you're still here. Bobby, you still <laughs> right. there? Oh no. Bobby. We lost Bobby.
I like how the Ringer MLB show has turned into performance art. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we All could right. end on an up note this week. Please, please, Bobby, hit stop before this segment goes <laughs> on. It. That'll just about do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB show. Thanks, as always, to Zach and Ben. Uh, thanks to Katie Baker. You can find her work at TheRinger.com and her takes on Twitter at Katie Bakes. Thanks to Bobby Wagner, who did a great job doing a lot of producing this week. Thanks to Chris Paddock, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., and Thanos the Mad Titan for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. Enjoy the week's action, and we'll see you next time. Brilliant Earth is the global leader in ethically sourced fine jewelry. Create your own custom engagement ring from a variety of diamonds, gemstones, metal types, and settings. Brilliant Earth also offers wedding rings, vintage pieces, and other unique handcrafted jewelry. From April 29th to May 5th, you'll receive complimentary diamond studs with the purchase of an engagement ring. To see terms for this special offer and to shop all Brilliant Earth selections, just go to brilliantearth.com slash ringermlb. Support for today's show comes from Smile Direct Club. Smile Direct Club straightens your teeth for 60% less in braces with invisible aligners sent directly to you. And exclusive for our listeners, you can get $100 off your invisible aligners when you go to smiledirectclub.com slash podcast and use offer code MLB100. You'll also get a $25 Amazon gift card with a free 3D scan at one of their smile shops or a $25 rebate on an at-home impression kit. That's smiledirectclub.com slash podcast, offer code MLB 100.